Welcome back to a second series of Leash Connects podcasts, where we meet more of the dedicated people who are there to support you and your community in the wonderful county of Leash. So my guests today are Barry Grant and Tony O'Reilly. Barry is a project manager and addiction counsellor at Extern Problem Gambling. And Tony is an addiction counsellor also and workshop facilitator also with Extern Problem Gambling. The Extern Problem Gambling project provides free helpline and counselling service to anyone on the island of Ireland affected by gambling-related harm. The work also involves delivering harm prevention talks to young people in places like schools, colleges, youth clubs and sports clubs. Guys, you're both very welcome. And I'd also say that Tony and Barry, you guys are also the host of the Problem Gambling podcast. So you're immersed in this type of work. And that's why I'm delighted to have you here today, because this is a subject I've been wanting to have a conversation about for quite a while, because it's probably not the most common of conversations to have. We can talk about gambling easy enough about the different race that's coming up or the different game that's coming up. But we don't necessarily always talk about the problems that are sometimes associated with that. And that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to talk about some of those problems and also with the intention that putting out the message that there's a service out there that can help people and families that are affected by problem gambling in in Ireland. So we're really, really thankful that you guys have agreed to come in and have this conversation. So maybe, Barry, if we could start, like, how widespread is gambling in Ireland in your experience? Gambling will be pretty widespread. I mean, if you include all forms of gambling, so a person buying one lottery draw ticket a month is gambling, right? So they're in those figures. Whereas the numbers of people who gamble regularly or who would gamble on sports betting or who would gamble on casino or who would gamble online is a much smaller percentage of all the people who gamble. If we include everything, it's probably kind of up in the 80%, something like that, because things like National Lottery would be so prevalent and the studies would include that. But if you drill down into the people who gamble regularly, that's a much smaller percentage. And then I suppose the number that we focus on will be the people who meet the criteria for a gambling problem. Originally, it was thought that that number was about 40,000. The Institute for Public Health in Ireland came up with that number. There was a prevalent study run by the HRB a couple of years ago that would bring the figure in around 28,000. So somewhere between 28 and 40,000 people with a gambling problem. Now, that might not seem like a lot to some people listening, but that's say that's 0.8% of the adult population. If you compare that to 0.7% of the population have an opiate addiction, most of us would be conscious, you know, if you live in some of the bigger cities, opiate addiction is something that's very visible. You know, something that we connect with, we, we see it on the streets, we see it in the news and in different platforms. Gambling addiction, while it's up there in terms of numbers or as a prevalence of the population, is something that most people have no clue about. You know, it's so well hidden and so easy to hide. And then studies from around the world would say that for every person with a gambling problem, there's anywhere between eight and 10 additional people affected. Children, partners, parents, siblings, teammates, co-workers that would be directly impacted by the person with the gambling problem's behaviours, right? So let's say it's at the lower end of the scale, let's say 30,000 times 10, 300,000 people in Ireland impacted by gambling-related harm, which is the kind of terminology that we like to use because if we just focus on gambling addiction, 
we're forgetting all of the affected others. And at the moment, about a quarter of the people who contact our helpline are concerned persons, affected others, and their lives are in turmoil. They probably suffer more than the person with the gambling problem, and their recovery is probably more complex than the recovery of the person with the gambling problem. So depending on how you slice it up, anywhere between 30,000 and 300,000 people being affected by gambling-related harm. And we would be a little bit dubious of that 30,000 figure because in Northern Ireland, the problem gambling prevalence rate is 2.3%, so almost three times what we are supposed to have in the Republic, right? So somebody somewhere... I think maybe he's getting the figures way off. Either it's us or it's in the north, although they've had more prevalence studies in the north and it might be more reliable data. But even if it is that kind of 30,000 people plus the knock-on effect of the affected others, that's a lot of people. I mean, the Labour Party recently did a survey because they're putting forward a bill around banning gambling advertising. And in their survey, they found that three out of four people who they surveyed stated that they knew someone who had a gambling problem. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. What are the telltale signs then? Like going from somebody who gambles to somebody that's there's a problem. What are the telltale signs? Well, let's say somebody who gambles recreationally in a moderate way. They know how to walk away with their winnings. So if they have a win, they cash out, they walk away, they spend that money on something else. They also know how to walk away from their losses. So if they have a loss... They chalk it down, they stay within their spending limits, whatever they decided on beforehand. They do not chase that loss. They just walk away, cut their losses. A person with a gambling problem can't stop when they're winning and they can't stop when they're losing. They will be one of the strongest indicators. Chasing your losses is one of the strongest indicators that you've got a gambling problem. Lying to people close to you about your gambling, about any aspect of it, about money that you're spending on it, time that you're spending on it, hiding the fact that you're gambling from loved ones will be another strong indicator. Betting more money than you can afford, so dipping into money that's supposed to be for important bills, mortgage, car payments, other important bills that you might have will be a strong indicator. Preoccupation, so going from just a normal kind of casual interest in gambling where maybe you do a football accumulator at the weekend, you see it as a bit of fun, you view it as entertainment, not as a way to make money. When people move from viewing gambling as a form of entertainment into a way of making money, that's where the preoccupation tends to start because as so many people have said to myself and Tony over the years, there's this moment when the person has a big win, it clicks and the person thinks this is easy, right? Then the preoccupation starts where the preoccupation, more time spent focusing on gambling, more money spent gambling, even when they're not gambling, they're studying form, they're doing research around gambling, they're checking scores, they're distracted, they're prioritizing gambling over family life, over social activities, physical health, mental health, sleep, all of the other kind of important priorities that we would have in life. They would be the main indicators. Of course, lots and lots of people gamble in a moderate recreational way. We're not anti-gambling. We're not abolitionists. We're not trying to stop the world from gambling, right? We just want to encourage people who already have gambling problems to seek help for those problems and to educate people who gamble recreationally so that they can watch out for what the warning signs might be so that they don't drift into those dangerous areas. Can I ask, Tony, from an addiction counselling perspective, is it the gambling behaviour that creates the addiction or is it the idea that you could actually make fast money? I think it's probably a combination of both. I think the idea that you can make with fast money is sometimes ingrained. Like, you know, as Barry said, 
you have that initial big win. You'll often hear someone had a small amount of money, had a big win earlier on in their gambling. But sometimes it's about how that happened as well. Like it could be that it was a last minute goal or horse that, you know, won in a head bob. So I think it's the idea that they can make money. So usually when people present for help, they always talk about an early win, whether that be at a young age or even at any age, that this win kind of gave them this idea that this is an easy way to make money. It could be having five euro and winning the price of a new pair of runners or winning the price of being able to pay for that night out. And what happens then is that creates a belief that this is an easy way. This is an easy way. I, I could do this as a living. I could do this. I can win a week's wages. So there's this false belief that forms. It creates this false belief that this is a new way of making money. The win, it reinforces that belief. So if you have a number of wins, it reinforces that belief. And even sometimes if you have the near loss phenomenon when you nearly win a bet, it kind of says, well, I was only one team away from winning that bet. That starts the kind of behaviour. What we find is that it usually goes on a continuum. So people will start off as a non-gambler and then they'll be a regular gambler where they might have their bets at the weekend on football accumulators or they might have the odd bet on the Grand National or it might be the odd scratch card or the odd lottery. What happens is that it starts that behaviour. So it becomes ingrained in their weekend. It becomes part of the experience of watching sport. It becomes part of their experience maybe of having a night out socially. So then when you add in the winning money aspect of it, it does create this belief that this could be a way to make a living and, and we often hear that in the GA meetings to talk about the dream world of the gambler so it's that world that we can lead a totally different life based on the money we can win from this and the evidence is always there from people who do present for support that that is their belief that this is something that can change my life and often that's probably the opposite. I suppose if you go back to what Barry was saying around the figures around people with gambling addiction, there's also a large cohort of people that are at risk of developing a problem. And that's people with this ideology that it is an easy way. I think that can have a huge impact as people go along that continuum because people don't necessarily fall into addiction within a couple of weeks. It's usually a process. Now that can be quicker for some people based on maybe underlying issues, but it can be that the problem gets because of the rise of technology and the fact that we can place a bet 24 hours a day from the comfort of our own bed or from the kitchen table or out having a meal. The fact that it's so accessible means that the availability is there. So it's kind of, it brings us along that continuum probably a little bit quicker than it might have done years ago because people can gamble 24 hours a day, as I was saying, but it's also the ease that we can do that and that can bring people along. I grew up close to a lovely town called Newcastle in County Downs. It was a seaside town, so lots of bars and restaurants and hotels, cafes, amusement arcades but also quite a lot of bookies. But in the olden days, you had to wait till the bookies were open before you could place your bet on a horse. But that's very different today. You don't need to step outside your front door to place a bet. Has that made a difference then to people? Huge difference. It's like click, click, bang, the bet is on. Like beforehand, you would have to physically get into your car, drive down, maybe sometimes take money out of the ATM, go in, write out a docket, go up to the counter, place the bet. So there was a series of events that would take that little bit longer. But now it's kind of open the app and we can do it within seconds. Gambling used to be quite a social thing then for people because there was that physical contact with people. To a certain extent, that still is the case. Like a lot of people will still gamble within the bookie offices. But what we find in our work is that people who drift online, who start using online, the problem can develop that little bit quicker or that little bit easier because of the ease of access. And because also back years ago in the bookie offices, it was your football bets, your racing. Nowadays, you can bet on Azerbaijan football, you know, netball in, in Peru at any time of the night. So there's nearly always events running globally that we can gamble on 24 hours so a day. So gambling runs parallel to sport then? Yeah. 
in different parts of the world. You can do your normal horse racing during the day, then it would be American racing in the evening, then you might have football matches in different parts of the world. And it's a constant, and there's so many markets that have been opened up because of the online aspect of it, that we have the ability to gamble at three o'clock in the morning on things that we know absolutely nothing about. And that's when a lot of the people who may have problems with it, that's when they are probably at their most vulnerable at that hour of the night. Give me a sense of how would you know that somebody close to you has a problem with gambling? Because right? like when you were talking the very start there, Barry, I buy the Euro Millions maybe three Fridays out of the year, 350, with the hope that I might win the 80 million. <laughs> But I have a bit of cop on, but I still buy it. But that's as far as it goes. And I don't have enough money to go into the horses and stuff, or I'm too tight, one or the other. If I had a problem with gambling, I mightn't even consider it to be a problem. But my wife might be seeing something, or my kids might be seeing something. What would that look like? Yeah, I suppose for a partner looking on, quite often it's there's not money for things that there normally will be money for. So, you know, the person with the gambling problem would normally be putting money aside for holidays or things like that and that money isn't there that might be a warning sign if the partner is the first one to meet the postman in the morning that's quite often a telltale sign because they're hiding credit card bills they're hiding loans that they've taken out in secret that they don't want the partner to know about. If they're surgically attached to their phone, because most of the people that we work with are gambling on their phones now, that would be a strong sign. And, and there was a piece of research from NUIG recently that found that roughly 50% of people who gamble on smartphones will develop gambling problems. So if you're gambling on your smartphone, the healthiest thing you could probably do is gamble on some other form of a device. <laughs> just, just from a harm minimization or harm reduction perspective, don't gamble on a smartphone. But most people who be gambling online like that, they're surgically attached to their phones. They take it with them everywhere. If they're going to the bathroom, they take the phone. They're taking it everywhere. There's no separating them from their phone. Their mood swings will very often be there. So there can be high highs, again, if the person is winning, low lows with lots of anger. Be off air, we were talking about domestic violence. I mean, there are studies from around the world that would strongly link domestic violence percentages to gambling addiction as well. So there can be that preoccupation, there can be the mood swings, obviously money not being there that's supposed to be there, isolating oneself. So a person who's normally maybe meets up with their friends or they play five aside or they're engaged in other activities is pulling back from those activities. Impact on the mental health, low mood, anxiety, you know, mentioned the anger as well. Lying about anything to do with the gambling will be a strong indicator. So if the person is lying about how much time they're spending gambling, how much money they're spending gambling, there'll be some of the stronger indicators. Or am I missing something there, Tony? Yeah, sometimes as well, you know, we would have heard stories where the person will actually pay the postman not to deliver the mail. You'd hear stories of that. So the post never comes to the house nearly. Like as Barry said, the mood swings, but also there can be the promise of buying that holiday or going on a certain trip. And then two days later, or a day later suddenly oh we can't go on that there's always kind of indication like that and definitely the secrecy is a big part of it but also it can be compulsive behaviour in other areas like playing free games so like sometimes the person may lose all their money 
after getting paid to kind of hold them for the first couple of days until they know that the wages are coming back in to play a lot of these free games to kind of keep the brain engaged. And that would be a common thing. It could be even people watching things like Netflix compulsively staying up late at night when the partner's gone to bed because a lot of times the gambling will be done freely when there's no one actually looking over their shoulder or they feel there's no one looking over their shoulder. And lots of times when people come for us for support, it could be the family member, like the wife or the partner, and it's kind of, they would say, I was nearly relieved I found out it was a gambling problem because I thought he was having an affair. It's similar type secrecy within that, as Barry was saying, hiding that phone, pulling that phone off the table. A lot of people's problem gambling is done in the toilet. So it's to get that space. Even working with someone a while ago, he was saying that he used to nearly disappear to the toilet for 20 minutes at a time and tell him that he had his stomach upset. Irrational or unusual behaviour as well. That wouldn't be your normal kind of behaviour. That must be, or certainly sounds like, it must be quite distressing for the person then with the problem. It'd be physically and emotionally draining. Lots of times when people do come, when they're actually at that place where they need to get the support, they're just in a really, really bad place. But it's like it's it's nearly as debilitating as a, an alcohol or drug problem in some ways that your mind is just absolutely frazzled. They've been dealing with the process of the problem gambling for so long, it has such a huge impact on their mental health. It's not that there's a there's no substance going into the body, but the brain is absolutely fried. It's just constantly thinking about gambling, planning to gamble, checking results, trying to hide stuff, trying to move money from here to there to keep up the pretense and to keep up the secrecy. So it's not just the act of going in and placing a bet. It's everything that goes with that as well. It's just like one of the questions I will always ask is how many hours a day would you spend gambling? And lots of times it is above eight, nine, ten plus hours because it's not just the act of placing a bet, it's what everything else that kind of goes with it as well. And is the distress then because of the loss or chasing the loss? Is that where the distress is coming from? Not always. I mean, I was suddenly talking to somebody during the week about how in the beginning it was the buzz was from winning money but towards the end you know when they were kind of burnt out on gambling and quite severely addicted the buzz was from losing everything and a lot of people will talk about the relief that they get when they've lost their last penny and they're walking out of the bookies or everything in their online account is gone because temporarily you have the monkey off your back because you don't have money to gamble with anymore that sounds really upside down to a lot and irrational I suppose if you're the average person listening to this and gambling isn't part of your life but if you imagine the way I like to think of it is like a roller coaster right the boring part of a roller coaster is the slow ride up to the top that's the boring bit the exciting bit on a roller coaster is the sudden drop to the bottom right and that's the way it ends up for a lot of people in a gambling addiction it's all the drama and it's all the chaos that goes with it that's where you're getting your adrenaline rush from because you can't get it from the sports results or the outcomes in the casino games anymore you're burnt out on that but you can still get excitement from all of the drama that the roller coaster ride brings to your life in other ways if that makes any sense how difficult is it to ask for help extremely difficult because of the stigma and shame still surrounding gambling because sometimes people who may not have experienced addiction of any sort or have had experience of a loved one with an addiction it's nearly like that the attitude why can't you just stop because I suppose as a behavioural addiction it's only been really recognised as that since 2013 in the DSM-5 we still are at the early stages of accepting that this is an addiction because the fact we're not putting a substance into our bodies it's kind of people say well why can't you just stop and and people often see it as a financial problem when it's a lot more than just that sometimes when people do present for help that's an extremely difficult part of it it's like picking up that phone or sending that email and when they do present for help it's usually at that low point so they're dealing with the 
fallout of the financial fallout, but also the the breaking of trust and the relational fallout from it. And then when everything does settle, when there is a little bit of recovery, as Barry was saying, you sense that the person is actually craving that chaos again. It's like a big part of their conditioning or their life has been taken away. And part of them is kind of, there's something not quite right here and they're looking for that chaos. And then that's why when people do stop gambling or kind of address the gambling problem, they will turn to other behaviours like online shopping or sometimes it can be pornography or even escorts or that kind of behaviour, which would be the case of a lot of people we would work with. Do people ask for help or are they brought to help? Are they forced? A mixture, I think. Usually it's when some big event has happened or some it has come to light. And usually, as we were saying, it's usually at that rock bottom, that low point that something has happened. That, you know, a statement was found showing that all the savings were gone or something happens that forces the person to look at it or actually finally reach out for that help. A lot of time what stops people reaching out for help is fear of judgment, it's kind of pride, it's ego, but most notably it's probably the cognition that they believe they can gamble their way out of the problem and they'll stay going even with the last couple of cent. If I can double this and double this, I can gamble my way out of this problem. And as I've often said in the past, you feel you can do that, you can gamble your way out of the gambling problem. You couldn't necessarily drink your way out of a drink problem. But with the gambling, you have the evidence there from previous wins that if I only do this or I put a little bit of extra money on certain things or certain events or that's my lucky event, all the different cognitions come into it and you do believe that I'm just that one big better way from solving everything and that can bring you along a very dangerous path as well. Is help effective Barry? Certainly when we're working with people I think the majority obviously not everybody because there's no treatment service of any kind out there that has a 100% success rate but the people who at the time you're working with them are motivated have the correct structures in place have a good support network around them they tend to do very well it's definitely something that's treatable and it's definitely something that people can get into good recovery from even when the addiction has been quite severe and debilitating and chronic and long running like over 10 20 30 year period i mean it's a while back we used to have an office in dublin and one of my first clients in dublin he's well into his 60s and he'd been trying to give up gambling for 20 30 years he'd been gambling since he was a boy been gambling for 40 50 years maybe i still keep in contact with him i have a chat with him every three months or so and he's in recovery for the first time in his life. And I love that he's a lovely guy and he, he had worked really hard to put the correct structures in place. And he was going to his Gamblers Anonymous meetings on a daily basis and coming for therapy and really putting his irrational beliefs under the magnifying glass and really committed to the programme and put his heart and soul into it. And I love that because there's so much negativity or there's a mindset or a belief around gambling addiction in particular that it's harder to recover from than other addictions. And I'm like for anybody listening to this, please don't buy into that idea, right? We, myself and Tony, and other therapists and addiction workers around the country work with people every day of the week who get into a good recovery, whether it's gone for treatment in the community or residential treatment or through Gamblers Anonymous or if it's through self-help or whatever way they arrive at it. That's not really important to me anyway. It is possible, even if you've gotten into a really horrible place as a result of your gambling, even if it's been going on for a very, very long time, even if you've racked up a huge amount of gambling-related debt, 
it's still possible to get into a good recovery. We work with people in those situations every day of the week. Of course, not everybody is a success at the time, but sometimes we'll have somebody who dropped out of therapy a year ago will come back and have a second go at it and like keep coming back, you know, as they say in the meetings, you know, people will have slips, people sometimes have full-blown relapses. Get back on the wagon, have another stab at it because if you're listening to this and you have a gambling problem and you think things are bad now, I guarantee you that it will only ever get worse, right? All addictions are progressive. So however bad it is now in your life, it can and will only ever get worse, right? That's pretty much guaranteed, right? Don't like to talk in kind of absolutist black or white terms, but all of the research and all of the lived experience out there would tell you the exact same thing. It's bad now. It's only ever going to get worse. So stop now. Do yourself a favour. Do everything you can to stop now. And it is possible to get into a good recovery. What does recovery look like then for somebody that knows that they've got a problem but is afraid to take that step forward, that they think that it's, it's too big a problem, it's too overwhelming because they may have been, say, like the gentleman you spoke of, they've maybe been at for the last 20 years or 30 years and it's become part of their character. What does recovery look like? Yeah, I suppose that part where it stops being part of your character, that's a longer term process. You know, like I would have smoked cigarettes for about 20 years. The first few years, I couldn't compute that I was no longer a smoker. I saw myself as a smoker since I was a child. I started smoking 11 or 12 years of age. It was very much part of my identity. I identified with other smokers. Stopping smoking is one thing. There's a much longer transition where your brain and your mind and your body accepts the fact, I don't do that anymore. I, I used to be a person who smoked. Now I'm not a person who smoked. And of course, nobody is born a smoker any more than anybody is born a gambler. It's a behavior. It's an addiction, the set of habits that you get into and you can work yourself out of. But changing the character and the identity is a longer term project, I think, for most behavioral changes or most addictions. But I suppose to help yourself get on that journey towards the change in identity, you start at the start. So what we start out with is what we call the ATM model. We didn't make this up. This comes from a UK organization that did a lot of work around this. So ATM stands for access. So you block access to gambling in as many ways as possible. So if you gamble in your local bookie shop, you can go in, sign a form. It's called self-exclusion. You can voluntarily self-exclude or bar yourself from a bookie shop. And if you live in a bigger town or city, you can go to all the bookie shops, sign the form, do that. If you gamble online, you can self-exclude from your online account. You can also put on blocking software on your devices. Gamban is one, BetBlocker is another. There are a few of them out there. You're blocking access to gambling, right? So that's your starting point. Again, casinos, arcades, you know, gambling venues should also allow you to sign a self-exclusion form. So you're blocking access. The T is for time. So like Tony said earlier, like for a lot of people with a gambling addiction, it's like having a second job where you lose all the money from your real job, right? It's like another eight hours a day, sometimes seven days a week, where you're putting all of this time and energy into it. It's eating into your sleep, it's eating into your family life, your social life, and obviously draining your finances. You have to look at that time and quite often I would do an exercise just where you circle the kind of lifestyle balance pie thing, draw a circle on a page and you go, this is what my lifestyle balance looks like now. So it's this chunk of the circle is 
time in work, this is time gambling, this is time of family, and so on and so on. Some of the people that I've worked with, more than half of that circle, more than half of that pie is gambling, right? So you're looking at a big chunk of your time. When you take away the gambling, you have to replace that with something else, right? Nature abhors a vacuum. You can't leave that big hole there. So you have to plan your free time. I'd say to anybody in early stage recovery, don't go to bed tonight with no plan for tomorrow. Even if the plan is walk the dogs, paint the wall, blah, blah, blah. It could just be mundane enough stuff. Ideally have some social stuff in there, but have a plan in the early stages of recovery. Do not have big gaps of free time in your day because naturally your mind will gravitate towards gambling. You've created that habit there and those neural pathways. And then the M is for money. And this is the part that everybody hates. Right? It's not fun. It's a bitter pill, but it works really well. It's a blunt instrument. So for most people, we would have had Oshin McConville on, on our podcast a while back. Oshin handed over complete financial control to his sister for maybe five or six years. Yeah. As soon as he got his wages, handed him to his sister. She would give him money for petrol, dribs and drabs as needed. You know, a lot of people would provide receipts in that situation. That's at the extreme end of the scale. At the less extreme end of the scale, you just create a relationship where you're accountable to at least one person for what you're spending your money on. So that could be your partner, it could be a sibling, it could be a parent. And you say, look, I'm going to sit down with you one day every week for five minutes, show you my online banking, show you my bank statement. Because that puts a mental block where you know, like this thing that you've been hiding for a very long time, now you're accountable if you have a slip. Somebody else will know about it if you have a slip. Everybody hates doing that, right? It's not fun. People feel infantilized. They feel like they're being treated like a child. It can sometimes cause conflict in relationships if it's a, say, romantic spousal relationship in terms of power dynamics and, you know, all sorts of things can happen there. But it's a blunt instrument that works really, really, really well because if you don't have money, you can't gamble and you can't get credit in a bookie shop, right? It's just not a runner. So somebody else is monitoring your spending or has total control of your finances for a period of time. Again, you could say six months and then review it. That's the starting point. Now, that's not recovery. That was your original question. Recovery is a much broader thing where you're rebuilding trust in your important relationships. You're reconnecting with all those people that you were isolating yourself from. You're obviously paying down any gambling-related debt. You're working on any underlying issues that might have been driving the gambling in the first place. So it could be adverse childhood experiences. It could be trauma. It could be underlying mental health issues. It could be an impulse control disorder. Or it could just be common or garden habituation where you just kind of fell into it and a habit formed over time. So recovery is a much broader thing. And that realistically, you're talking like a two year project to kind of get into a good place where you're at that point, for most people, the identity, that part of your character that you mentioned earlier on, Anthony, that's been weeded out. You're now the person who used to do that. You're not a gambler who no longer gambles. You know, there's this idea in the AA meetings of a, a dry drunk you know, somebody who doesn't drink anymore, but they're not really in recovery. You know, they're just what they call white knuckling it. So they don't physically consume alcohol, but they're miserable because they don't consume alcohol anymore, right? There isn't a word for that in the gambling space, but that, you know, I've met people who've really been suffering. They've been abstaining. They've really been suffering through that process. They haven't really gotten into a good recovery. That's not a criticism, but I suppose recovery is that part where you may still have thoughts about gambling. You may still have urges to gamble, experience triggers to gamble, but it's not that big part of your identity anymore in the same way. So that offers hope then, Tony, would that be fair to say that there is hope? 
Definitely. I think when the person presents for help, as I was saying, it's at that rock bottom place. So hope is nearly all gone in their eyes. Like their hope of maybe there may be a job loss or a relationship is lost as well. And that there's a lot of hopelessness there. And I suppose what we try to do as therapists is to create an environment where hope is in the room so that the person, when they engage in the process, they may not feel the hope themselves, but there is hope in the room. So we are nearly like the carriers of hope for that person until that hope does come back into the person. And just to add to what Barry was saying about recovery, recovery for me would be gambling when it's in the background or the foreground, when it becomes a problem, it absolutely sucks the life out of everything that's enjoyable or everything that is important in your life. And recovery is about trying to get the joy back into your life. And that is true therapy, it is true looking at conditioning, all that stuff. But it's about getting that joy back in and being able to enjoy the small things without having to have a bet on it. It's like being able to enjoy sport without having to place a bet on it. That can be a difficult place to get to because of the conditioning over many years of gambling. Like we spoke about the man who maybe gambled for 40 years. Like He's so used to maybe his weekends being dominated by gambling related activities. So it's like reinventing yourself nearly to get joy into the small things, whereas gambling has always been in the background. And it does suck the life out of absolutely everything that can be good in your life. You know, even being out in nature, even spending time with children gambling can dominate that and because we have it on our smart devices you'll often hear people out for that meal and they're gambling under the table or they're out for spending time with their kids at the weekend and they can't but stay gambling on a particular event it is about being more than just being abstinent from it you have to try find that recovery and that's a difficult part with as well but it's not impossible as we were saying earlier on it is difficult at times with that hopelessness to see how can my life be the way it used to be or the way it could be without this thing that was been there for so long so it can be difficult so I suppose what we try to do within our own podcast is to have guests on who show that there is life after addiction and there is a good life in recovery we've had numerous guests on over the last year who have shown that you know life can become normal again or can be better again and I think that's the that's the hope that we try to carry for people when they do come in that room for the first time for support guys thank you so much for coming in chat with us today thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed our conversation and i look forward to your next podcast until then slong go for you